Just a heads up, this episode involves the death of a human, not just plants. Nearly 30 years ago, a guy named Chris McCandless died in the Alaskan wilderness. If you're familiar with the book Into the Wild, you've heard of him. McCandless was a 24-year-old college grad who got rid of all of his savings, changed his name to Alex Supertramp, renounced his material possessions, and sought enlightenment in the great outdoors. Unfortunately, the great outdoors turned out to be pretty unforgiving for McCandless. On September 6th, 1992, Several moose hunters discovered his body. It weighed just 67 pounds. McCandless kept a journal during his Alaskan trek. He only ended up documenting 113 days. Author John Krakauer immortalized McCandless with the book Into the Wild. But McCandless's death has remained a point of contention. Krakauer has revisited the question over and over again in his writings, and many others have weighed in. Did McCandless die because he ate toxic plants, as Krakauer has said, or did he die of an extreme calorie deficit? In other words, starvation. I'm Ellen Earhart, and this is Plant Crimes. After John Krakauer learned McCandless's story, he decided to write an article about it for Outside Magazine. In that 8,400-word story, he wrote his first theory for how McCandless died. He changed this hypothesis for the book, and then changed it again in another printing of his book, and then wrote a New Yorker story with another theory, and then wrote an update on the New Yorker story with yet another theory. There's two different stories here. There's what John Krakauer has said and what any other authority who might have any reason to be credible has said. And John Krakauer's story has changed. The authorities, it hasn't moved at all since his, Chris's body was examined in 1992. That was Samuel Thayer, who I'll introduce properly in a minute. When I set out to report this story, I tried to email everyone who was involved. I found Krakauer's email address on an academic article and also reached out to his publisher, but I did not hear back from him, so we won't be hearing from him on this episode. I also reached out to Thomas Clausen, a chemistry professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, who did a lot of the analyses we'll be hearing about in this episode. He didn't want to be on the episode, but he emailed me about the case. He wrote that he believed the original state crime lab's report that McCandless died of starvation. And he also recommended that I reach out to Samuel Thayer, who you heard from earlier. My name is Samuel Thayer. I am a educator and writer on edible wild plants, and I've been doing that for more than 20 years. Excellent. Do you want to talk a little bit about your books? Well, I've written three books on edible wild plants. Really, they could be considered a, a series. They're kind of all a continuation on the same theme. 
a forages harvest nature's garden and incredible wild edibles and they just cover different plants i'm trying to cover plants in a much greater detail than other books on the topic there helped me untangle the last 30 years of speculation about what happened in early fall 1992 trying to write this episode made me feel like a caricature of a true crime podcast host or like matthew mcconaughey in the first season of true detective with a corkboard full of old newspaper articles connected by strings. There's a lot of twists and turns. I'm going to lay it all out as best I can. Our story starts at the end of McCandless's life. So first of all, Chris died in 1992. So the official story, what was that? When the hikers who found him reported to the authorities and then the medical examiner brought in and examined the body. They determined starvation as his cause of death is what the medical examiner determined in September of 1992. Got it. And why did they think that? Well, his remains weighed 67 pounds, which Chris was a skinny guy and a, not a tall guy, but that's still really, really small. They estimated because of decomposition that his remains had originally weighed 83 pounds at the time of his death because it was almost two weeks between the estimated time of his death and when his body was found. A few pieces of press came out about McCandless's death. There was a story in People magazine about it. The story says, McCandless then apparently hiked about 30 miles until he stumbled on the bus, which was just off the trail. What happens next remains a mystery. His diary speaks of falling into an icy river, but an autopsy showed no injuries. This bus comes up again and again in the story. It's on most covers of Into the Wild. It was an old abandoned bus where McCandless lived during his time in Alaska. The People article quoted Captain John Myers of the Alaska State Police saying, it's a pretty rich country out there, and he went at a good time. There's lots of game, lots of birds, lots of things to eat. The short article makes a couple of salient points about how McCandless could have gotten out of his tight situation before it got too dire. Quote, as locals point out, if McCandless had wanted to attract a search party, he could have started a fire in the forest. One possibility is that he became weakened or delirious from eating hallucinogenic mushrooms or poisonous plants. In January 1993, Krakauer wrote about McCandless for the first time. Here's a brief excerpt of it, since Krakauer is a great writer and it lays out the scene pretty nicely. McCandless had been digging and eating the root of the wild potato, Hedicerum alpinum, a common area wildflower also known as Eskimo potato, which Carrie's book told him was widely eaten by native Alaskans, for more than a month without ill effect. On July 14th, he apparently started eating the pea-like seed pods of the plant as well, again without ill effect. There is, however, a closely related plant, wild sweet pea, Hedicera mackenzii, that is very difficult to distinguish from wild potato, grows beside it, and is poisonous. In all likelihood, McCandless mistakenly ate some seeds from the wild sweet pea and became gravely ill. Laid low by the poisonous seeds, he was too weak to hunt effectively, and thus slid toward starvation. Things began to spin out of control with terrible speed. Day 100, made it, he noted jubilantly on August 5th, proud of achieving such a significant milestone. 
but in weakest condition of life. Death looms a serious threat, too weak to walk out. Over the next week or so, the only game he bagged was five squirrels and a spruce grouse. Many Alaskans have wondered why, at this point, he didn't start a forest fire as a distress signal. Small planes fly over the area every few days, they say, and the Park Service would surely have dispatched a crew to control the conflagration. Chris would never intentionally burn down a forest, not even to save his life, answers Kareen McCandless. Anybody who would suggest otherwise doesn't understand the first thing about my brother. Starvation is not a pleasant way to die. In advanced stages, as the body begins to consume itself, the victim suffers muscle pain, heart disturbances, loss of hair, shortness of breath. Convulsions and hallucinations are not uncommon. Some who have been brought back from the edge of starvation, though, report that near the end their suffering was replaced by a sublime euphoria, a sense of calm accompanied by transcendent mental clarity. Perhaps it would be nice to think McCandless enjoyed a similar rapture. So, did you catch that? Krakauer's first hypothesis was that McCandless mistook Hedysarum mckenziei for Hedysarum alpinum. Then McCandless became too weak to hunt or forage effectively, and then he died. Thayer doesn't think that's likely, since at that point, McCandless had already been foraging for quite a while. Krakauer, with the benefit of hindsight in later writings, says the same thing. In 1993, John Krakauer wrote the Outside Max story. And so what did he say then? So in that story, he reported that he believed that Chris had accidentally mistaken Hedysarum alpinum that Chris was eating. So Krakauer proposed that he confused this with another plant, Hedysarum mackenzii, and that's how he got poisoned. That's what he originally proposed in the Outside Magazine article. Okay, and are those plants easy to confuse? Here's an area where there's some subjectivity here because any person who is not familiar with two things doesn't know which thing they might be, right? So there's thousands and thousands of species of plants in North America. Any person, regardless of whether they're an expert or a beginner, can be shown a plant and after some familiarization with it, then can recognize it. But I think if I were to show you Hesarm alpinum and there was a Mackenzie mixed in there, you're not going to ever think that's the same thing. Like at your very first glance, you know that's something very different. So yes, they're similar, but a person who, particularly someone who's eating one for a couple weeks, knows that the other one is a different plant. Okay, and Chris had been eating them for a couple weeks at this point, right? Yeah, at the time where he supposedly poisoned himself, according to Krakauer, he had been eating the Hedysarum alpinum for, I think, 17 days. I think that's the amount of time. A while. After publishing an outside mag, Krakauer decided to expand the story further and Into the Wild was born. According to his later New Yorker story, this is where he started to doubt his first hypothesis about the plant confusion. He looked at the book that McCandless used to identify edible plants. Cracker writes the book explicitly states that Hedysarum mckenzii and Hedysarum alpinum resemble each other and how to avoid confusing them. Both Krakauer and Thayer eventually came to the conclusion that it was unlikely that McCandless mistook one for the other. 
Also, they are cast doubt on another part of this theory, whether Hetty Sarr McKenzie is even toxic at all. In 1993, he published the book, and he had a different hypothesis there. Yes. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so he changed his hypothesis because there is absolutely no evidence that Hedisarum mackenzii is toxic. There is no reason to believe that. And he couldn't find any evidence of that. It's just a thing that he kind of made up is maybe this is true. There was one person in 1848, so he came up with the idea in, in Into the Wild that he ate the seeds. So Chris you know, didn't leave a whole, like, detailed journal, but it does indicate he was eating the roots of Hedisarum alpinum, and then he later ate the seeds of Hedisarum alpinum. So Krakauer's new theory in the first edition of Into the Wild was that he started eating the seeds. So he completely discarded the mistaken identity thing and said he ate a part he shouldn't have been eating. The tradition for people in that region is to eat the roots of Hedisarum alpinum, not to eat the seeds. And so then he proposed that the seeds of Hedisarum alpinum were the poisonous part. Krakauer conceived another story. Maybe McCandless ate the seeds of Hedysarum alpinum, not just the roots, and maybe those seeds were toxic. Krakauer sent some of these seeds to Thomas Clausen, the University of Alaska Fairbanks chemist who I exchanged emails with, and his grad student, Edward Treadwell. The scientists initially sent Krakauer a test that showed there was an alkaloid in the seeds. In Into the Wild, Krakauer writes that this alkaloid could have been swansonine, which causes neurological problems, reduced growth, appetite suppression, and reproductive issues in livestock. Later, in his 2013 New Yorker article, he said that this was a rash assumption. Because, after further investigation, Clausen and Treadwell didn't end up finding swansonine or any other alkaloids. A writer named Matthew Power wrote a rebuke to Krakauer's explanation for McCandless's death in Men's Journal in 2007. Power quotes Clausen saying, no alkaloids, I'd eat it myself. Enter the moldy seed hypothesis. For the next printing of his book, Krakauer wrote that maybe a mold infected H. alpinum seeds and produced swansonine. Thayer refutes this for a couple reasons. First, that mold is not known to infect that plant. Secondly, McCandless's symptoms didn't really match with swansonine poisoning. Lastly, there isn't any evidence that McCandless ate moldy seeds, and he probably would have had to eat quite a bit in order to suffer symptoms. Got it. And what was the moldy seed hypothesis? So it's simply that there's a mold called Rhizoctonia leguminicola, and that this mold produces swansonine, and it grows on legumes. It grows on some forms of hay when the hay gets wet. It has been known to. And a lot of what we know about swainsonine poisoning also derives from cases of this poisoning in livestock. Okay, and what are the symptoms of that kind of poisoning? Basically, loss of coordination, and there may be a paralysis factor in large amounts. Sean Penn waded into this debate in the 2007 movie version of Into the Wild. 
He followed the first theory of McCandless accidentally eating H. McKinsey instead of H. Alpinum. Another thing happened in 2007, which was the movie came out. Yeah. So how is McCandless' death depicted in the movie? So in the movie, McCandless' death is depicted back to the first proposed scenario of Crack Hours, which is simply that Chris mistook one plant for another, so he mistakenly ate the Edisar McKenzie and that the Edisar McKenzie is extremely toxic. So this is really just like a straight-up absurdity in that we know that McKenzie is not toxic in that fashion, um, would not cause symptoms like that, and there's no reason to think that he ate it either. Okay, buckle up, because we still have two more theories to get through. In 2013, Krakauer published the New Yorker article that I've referenced a couple times so far. He adopted a new theory based on an essay he found by a retired staff member of the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, Ronald Hamilton. This essay is worth a read in its entirety, but it's mostly about a Nazi Romanian concentration camp in what is currently the Ukraine. The Nazi authorities did a horrific experiment on their prisoners. They made flour out of Lathyrus sativus and used it to make all the inmates food. Within months, the people at the camp stopped being able to walk properly. A lot of them had to use crutches or weren't able to move at all. A Jewish doctor realized what was going on, told everyone else, and the prisoners stopped eating. Eventually, a governor called the horrific experiment off, but the damage had already been done. Lathyrism, as this condition is called, is irreversible. It's happened several times in history when a group of people relied on Lathyrus sativus as their main source of protein. This legume is hardy and often survives when other crops fail, so sometimes people eat it when they have no other choice. According to Hamilton's account, the Jewish doctor, who had realized the problem in his concentration camp, survived to study and treat patients with Lathyrism. He isolated the neurotoxin in question and gave it an acronym, ODAP. ODAP is an amino acid, not an alkaloid, which is what the chemists Clausen and Treadwell had been searching for. Hamilton convinced some chemists at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania to investigate. The seeds of both H. McKenzie and H. alpinum had higher levels of ODAP than Lathyrus sativus. Hamilton came to the conclusion that McCandless ate too many seeds, contracted Lathyrism, and then was too sick to hunt or forage for any more food. Hamilton notes at the end of his paper that he hopes that McCandless's case will draw attention to Lathyrism. I couldn't find great stats on the prevalence of Lathyrism today, but there are still lots of diseases of malnutrition. The World Health Organization estimates that 45% of all deaths of children under five are because of poor nutrition. So to me, that's pretty convincing, right? Krakauer might have been right this time. But that's not the end of the story. In 2015, Krakauer wrote another update with an accompanying peer-reviewed academic article in the journal Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. This New Yorker article is a rebuttal to a journalist named Dermot Cole at the Anchorage Daily News, who wrote a story called Krakauer's Wild Theory on McCandless Gives Short Shrift to Science. Like me, Cole corresponded with the chemist Thomas Klossa via email about the validity of Krakauer's latest theory. Clausen said he would trust Krakauer's findings, really Hamilton's findings, 
a lot more if they were in a peer-reviewed journal. So Krakauer got several scientists together and did a study. They tested H. alpinum for ODAP using mass spectrometry. They did not find ODAP and therefore disproved Hamilton's hypothesis. However, they did find a compound that was roughly the molecular weight of ODAP, and Krakauer was determined to find out what that mystery chemical was. He found an article in the Canadian Journal of Botany from 1960 that stated that H. alpinum contained a toxic amino acid called L-cananavine, which has an almost identical molecular weight to ODAP. Krakauer asked his group of scientists to test for L-cananavine, and they found that H. alpinum did contain this toxin. In the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine paper, they wrote, Our results confirm the presence of L-cananabine, an antimetabolite with demonstrated toxicity in mammals, as a significant component of H. alpinum seeds. In the case of Christopher McCandless, there is evidence that H. alpinum seeds constituted a significant portion of his meager diet during a period before his death. Based on this and what is known about the toxic effects of L-cananabine, we make the logical conclusion that under these conditions, it is highly likely that the ingestion of relatively large amounts of this anti-metabolite was a contributing factor to his death. Thayer doesn't think that McCandless could have eaten enough H. alpinum seeds to suffer serious effects from this poison. We have a similar situation with the latherism, ODAP, where this toxin affects people when they are malnourished, when they eat a lot of it for a very long time. We have a different situation in that the cannabinine poisoning is ephemeral. It goes away. It is not permanent. So when you stop ingesting the toxin, your body has a few days to remove the toxin from its system, and the symptoms of the poison go away. So on the one hand, there was one good part to this article, which was that they confirmed this chemical was actually present. But there still isn't any logical connection between that fact and Chris McCandless dying for a number of reasons. One being, he starved to death. That didn't happen in the 14 days or so. Well, let me think. July 30th is when he was sick. And then was it estimated that he died September 8th? Do you have that info? Um, I think September 12th is the day that he died. Or is that when they found him? Oh, yeah, that might have been the day that they found him. So they don't really know when he died. They know he died after a certain date. Anyways, now there's no indication that he ate these seeds after July 30th. So if he was fine until he ate these seeds and then he stopped eating these seeds after he got sick from them like that's kind of the end of the story it still takes him five and a half weeks to die the seeds aren't implicated in that in the end it seems to me that Krakauer was defending McCandless a lot of people especially Alaskans were annoyed with him and maybe rightly so Anchorage Daily News columnist Craig Madrid calls him a bum, poacher, and thief. There's this resentment towards a rich kid who thought he could just camp out by himself and survive. Both Krakauer and Thayer push against this narrative. 
So in that sense, I agree with John Krakow. It bugs me when people are acting like he did some insane – I guess it was insane for him to to try to do it without learning how to do it. But it wasn't an inherently stupid idea. I've done not exactly that, but I've done a lot of things pushing my limits, especially when I was in my teens and my 20s. So I look back and I'm like, man, I'm lucky I survived that. Yeah, it was just circumstances just added up so that he couldn't make it out. Yeah, there's a couple people every year that die in Alaska like that. And it's this big country. It's not forgiving of those mistakes. Of course, McCandless was old enough to understand that he was making some dangerous decisions. But, as Thayer said, it's hard not to have compassion for him and the many people who die every year testing their luck in extreme environments. It's also easy to understand the resentment of Alaskans. Just this summer, a newlywed woman died trying to reach the area that McCandless and Into the Wild made famous. And many people are rescued from that location every year, according to the Fairbanks Daily News Miner. It's no doubt deeply frustrating to have to save inexperienced visitors over and over again, or grieve their deaths. In order to understand this story better, I wanted to learn more about what the Alaskan wilderness is like for someone who knows. I decided to call my good friend, Mark Kaufman. First of all, can you give me your name and your background, what you do now and what you did in your former career? Most certainly. My name is Mark Kaufman, and I am science and environmental reporter at Mashable, and in my former life, I worked as a park ranger for the National Park Service in some of the wildest places on Earth. Very cool. And you did some work in Alaska, right? Can you tell me about that? In the lower 48, there are a plethora of national parks, but they're a lot more developed, easy to get to, and sort of oftentimes, unfortunately, to um, Edward Abbey's chagrin, kind of watered down compared to what's going on in Alaska. Alaska just has a lot of wilderness that's still untrammeled. I worked at Katmai National Park, which is home to one of the, if not the densest concentration of brown bears, which are basically fat grizzly bears in the world. There are no roads leading to the park. Most everybody gets there by landing on a, on a glacial lake on a float plane. That's how I got there, and that's how all my food got there, for example. If you go there and want to wander out of the main camp, you enter the wilderness, and you're on your own. It's exciting, it's wonderful, and it's oftentimes can be pretty damn dangerous. Kaufman is only vaguely familiar with the Chris McCandless story. I asked him what he would have done if he had run into a 24-year-old who wanted to venture outside park grounds on his own. So if you had been working in Alaska and you ran into this 24-year-old who's like, in a month, I'm going to take off with this 22 and my journal and almost nothing else, he had a bag of rice. What would you have said? I know it happened to him, of course, but I believe I would have said, you will die. <laughs> because one thing I learned in Alaska is, you know, we'd work five days and we'd have two days, sometimes three days off. And every plan you make, at least half the time, if not like 75% of the time, you had to just cancel your plans because, <laughs> because it's just so gnarly. You can't just go out 
when the weather's poor, going out places that there are no trails. You have no hope of getting in contact with somebody if you're in trouble unless you give a satellite phone or a spot device or something like that. Nobody can help you. Nobody can get to you. And it's another world. It's true wilderness out there. Even on short trips where we knew where we were generally going, we've been caught in really, really bad situations. People would have hypothermia and we'd have to engage in the whole put them in a sleeping bag, you know, with hot We'd have to use all our camp fuel, boil water, and put in the sleeping bag with them and warm them up and stuff like that. These are just relatively minor trips. So, I mean, if you're talking about going into the wilderness by yourself and you're generally a fool when it comes to understanding that area, I think that odds are that you will die. In the end, Kaufman and I were left contemplating our weird, small, needy human bodies. We don't really need a complicated botanical explanation for why McCandless died. Once we get away from civilization and civilization's calorie-dense foods and protection from the elements, the situation can get bleak quickly. It's so extreme out there. In the summertime, there were so many bugs out, like mosquitoes and like flies and noceums and these little bugs called white socks that take a little chunk out of your flesh. Um, even in our camp, which was in Katmai and, and as far as like, Katmai National Park goes, like super developed, there were so many bugs in summer that when we would play basketball outside, we had to wear bug nets over our heads. I mean, no way. <laughs> yeah. So when you consider sitting in the middle of the woods by yourself, I can't imagine any of that ever being pleasurable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even even on a mild-mannered, pleasant summer day, you're just surrounded by the ruthlessness of the wilderness. <laughs> I had a fascinating conversation with this professor from New Brunswick about the idea of humans attempting to colonize Mars. And, <laughs> you know, she said, the thing that we will come away with when we try to do that is how difficult it is to survive if there's no one there to help you. And the foundational reason why white settlers didn't all perish when they came to colonize what is now the United States is because there were First Nations and Native Americans there that understood the land and understood the harsh realities of the wilderness that helped them, helped them to survive. So anyways, if you're a young dude going into a deep wilderness with no help by yourself in any season, you're going to put yourself in a terrible position. Thank you to Janet Gersovich for suggesting this episode idea. If you have a lead you want to send me, DM me on social media or email me at plantcrimes at gmail.com. If you want to report something confidential, you can find my signal on my website, plantcrimes.com. Two small corrections on last week's episode. Dr. Timu Thierry is Finnish, not Dutch. I'm sorry. Brain slip. Also, my mom let me know that petunias are winter annuals, so they die during the summer, not the winter. I did some more research into this, and I think that's especially true in warmer climates. If you hear something on this podcast that does not sound quite right, please write me and I will re-examine it. I often work as a professional fact checker, and accuracy is very important to me, but sometimes I miss stuff. Thank you to John Agnew for the voice acting. 
Thank you to Elena Lacey, Nikki Duong, and John Agnew for being my first listeners, and thanks to Nikki for the Plant Crimes art. If you like this show, please leave a review. It helps people find me. And thank you to the people who have left them already. Thanks for listening.